The theology of the body is not given so that we can have some fancy argument to sling at our whatever relatives at Thanksgiving. This is an understanding of what God is doing in human hearts. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin, the official podcast of St. Anthony of Padua. My name is Nate Hoffman. I am the Communication and Development Coordinator here at St. Anthony of Padua. Today we have a special recorded talk for you. Michael Gormley is in the midst of recording a four-day series on Theology of the Body. You may have heard us talk about this series on a previous podcast. Here on this feed, you're going to hear night one of the series. And if you'd like to hear nights two, three, and four, you can pop over to our Etc. feed, our newest podcast feed. On that feed, you're going to see evangelization, theology, and catechetics, all from St. Anthony of Padua, mostly from Michael Gormley. Um, it's a great uh, new podcast feed here at St. Anthony, so be sure to subscribe to that. You can find it in the episode description. So without further ado, here's night one. Microphone check. One. Okay, so that's good. This is going to be fun. This is going to be so fun. I'm so excited. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, come to my assistance. God, make haste to help me. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, a world without end. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, bless and praise your holy and sacred name. We give you all honor, power, glory, strength, all that is good. We give you glory for it. For every good and perfect gift descends from the Father of lights. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we humble ourselves before your sacred mystery. God who created us and then, in the fullness of time, born of a woman born under the law, redeemed us, purchased for us at the great price of his own life. Lord Jesus, you spilled forth the last drops of blood and water from your most sacred heart, becoming the perfect gift, the perfect offering to the Father and to us, showing us the ends towards which love will go in order to seek union with one's beloved. So Jesus, we trust in you, and in your name we pray, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, so is there anyone here from presentation? Anyone here for presentation? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, okay. We're gonna ask you guys to sit over there, just kidding, okay. <laughs> No, I sent an email out to, uh, to Father Fletcher, and I was like, maybe this would work, maybe, kind of. And he said yes, so uh, I was happy to be in the flock note. So does, has anyone ever actually heard of theology of the body before? Just raise your hand. How many of you have never heard of this? You're just like, theology of the body, what? Okay, handful of you, handful of you. Some of you giving me T-Rex arms. It's okay to not know this. Some of y'all are like, mm, I don't know, I don't know. Hello, hello, good to see you. So this is the Theology of the Body. It has a 100-page introduction by a guy named, uh, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Mikael, it's Michael Waldstein. It is worth the price of the book just to get the man's introduction. It is awesome, it is good, it is powerful. Uh, but then he decided to write his own in-depth commentary uh, kind of pushing uh, it even more. Uh, the glory of the logos in the flesh. So theology of the body goes even further. Now we're going to talk about the theology of the body. That's what this session is all about. But before he wrote that, that's theology. Here's philosophy. Love and responsibility. Love and responsibility. This is before he was Pope. His name was Karol Wojtyla. 
And Carol Voitillo wrote, uh, gave a series of lectures in Lublin University, the only university that was open uh, after the Iron Curtain fell that was a Catholic university. It was a world-renowned, very respected scholarly institute. And he was, I don't know if he was a cardinal at the time when he began these particular lectures. He has a book called Love and Responsibility, Person and Act, Memory and Identity. He has a bunch of these, uh, those types of classes. Uh, this, when he gave this, standing room only, in a lecture hall of like 200, it was jam-packed with like 400 people, and it would eventually become a book. In 1968, there was a man who was reading this book when he was writing a particularly influential piece of paper, which was called Humane Vitae by Pope St. Paul VI. And that's why there are some of the arguments of Pope Paul VI that is reminiscent of the personalistic argument of JP2 in this book. What's the personalistic argument, you ask? Don't worry, baby birds, mom's gonna feed you. We'll get to that part in a little bit. But uh, I just want you to know that maybe theology ain't your thing. You don't know where you stand in relationship to God. You don't know where you stand in relationship to the gospel. Let me tell you something. You can still hear and receive this message. Love and responsibility is an excellent introduction philosophically, that is from reason alone, this whole enterprise that would eventually be called the theology of the body. It's very important. Um, this book, I think is, well, let me do this one first. This is called Theology of the Body for Beginners. This is where most people have heard of Christopher West uh, and the Theology of the Body. He introduced, so how many of y'all who have heard of Theology of the Body heard of it through Christopher West, a bunch of, okay, okay. Now, some of y'all are afraid to raise your hands. Okay, now, how many of y'all who have heard of the theology of the body have ever actually read the theology of the body? One, two, a little bit, a little bit, okay, a little bit. You've read it? A little bit, <laughs> a little bit. So we got a little bit here. So I had to read it for, you've read it all? I'm doing it, doing the first book, This book, a popular version of Love and Responsibility by Edward Shree, professor. Uh, so Theology of the Body for Beginners was published. It's gotten like three or four iterations now. But um, it's a good book. It's on Kindle. Uh, you can get it. Now, he actually wrote one for Protestant groups to take the theology of JP2 and make it more palpable for Protestant audiences. And shockingly, that's actually an audio book, and none of this stuff is. Thank you, Catholic publishers. Uh, that audiobook is called... Our Bodies Tell God's Story. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I was just listening to it in triple speed in order to prepare for tonight. So there's that. Um, uh, I'm not really going to go through those books, but I have two more books. Uh, the Genesis of Gender just came out about a month ago. Dr. Abigail Favale, she is a professor. Used to be at George Fox. You have that book? Nice. She used to be at George Fox University. Um, which was, uh, is not a Catholic school, it's a Christian private college, and she was the LGBT plus per friendly professor. She was the one that all, because she's the gender theory feminist, that all of her, all of the students would come to. And then as George Fox, more or less, like most universities, ends up shifting hard towards that kind of progressive approach to, to human identity and sexuality, um, she actually has a, a bizarre conversion. She has an awesome conversion story in a book called Into the Deep. But, um, and she's a brilliant writer. She's an awesome writer. I mean, she's incredible. So to read this book is, chapter one's called Heretic, because as she is the go-to person for all this stuff, she ends up uh, getting married, and she becomes pregnant, and she has a boy. 
And now, as a feminist, she said, I don't know if you know, this is very popular for feminists to abort their boys because they don't want to foster the patriarchy. So there's this whole, there's a whole thing on, on Reddit, you know, and obviously that doesn't represent everyone, but there's this whole thing on Reddit about what, you know, post your abortion, how you stop the patriarchy. And it was all like, when I found out a man had invaded my, you know, all this horrible language. So she begins becoming more and more alienated and, and uh, starts to question some of the more troubling narratives that was happening to language and other stuff. And then she converted to Catholicism somewhat shockingly. She did it because she thought, well, I could be like a fake Christian and be, still be Catholic. So that's an indictment. Um, <laughs> but then her conversion starts to ramp up when she starts reading JP2's Theology of the Body and a bunch of other stuff. So she takes some sections of JP2's writing and sends them to a famous French feminist author. Now, does everyone in here know the difference between French feminism and American feminism? No, no, no. You guys don't have those conversations at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning with <laughs> your fellow liturgist, Brian Jones. Okay, so here's the difference. French feminism is a holdout. The, the major French female authors, I should say, are a holdout of what we would call gender theory or the gender turn in feminist theory. For gender theory came out of feminist theory, and we're going to get into that probably on day three, just the history of it and whatnot. But uh, French feminism believes they are essentialists. An essentialist in feminist thought is only a woman can understand what it means to be a woman. And that means only a woman biologically, only a woman who's gone through this, that, and the other, you know, experience of puberty and, and all, all the stuff that the modern woman goes through, only they can truly understand the experience of being a woman. And that is now one of the most offensive things in feminist thought today, in American feminism and UK feminism, uh, because, well, essentially because of how gender theory has kind of co-opted the feminist space which is amazing because that's what you find in gender theory is it keeps co-opting women's spaces for itself. It's a fascinatingly disturbing trend. But within the context of this, French feminists have held out, right? They're, they're, no, we are essentialists. So she takes a bunch of writings of Pope John Paul II and sends them to this woman. And this woman hits reply and is like, I demand to know who this author is. He's plagiarized me. He's taken all my, all my major thoughts. And she's like, well, he is the Pope, he's dead, and he did it 30 years before you published your book. And she said, where is this from? She told about the Theology of the Body, so she sent her a copy. Now, it's fascinating because when we can understand, when we can separate ideology from theory, and we can start to understand the historical genesis of these things, um, whether you're sympathetic or not, just getting an understanding of the development of how we ended up here in culture, society, whatever, uh, even if you hate every word out of my mouth, I guarantee you, you will greatly benefit from understanding where this stuff comes from. Now, this book, right, if you're a smart human being who can handle the, the philosophy and whatnot, this book was written for you, right? You need to read this book. This is an awesome book, but it goes through the entire women's movement from the 1880s to present, and it goes through it thematically, not chronologically. It is brilliant. Highly recommend it. Lastly, and if I read from this, uh, I probably will cry. Uh, this is The Jeweler's Shop by Pope John Paul II. 
okay? When he was, uh, Karol Wojtyla writing this in Poland, you gotta understand that Poland was under communist oppressive rule. Prior to that, it was under Nazi rule. He clandestine, went to a clandestine seminary in order to become a Catholic priest during the reign of the Nazis, crazy situation. Um, and he was the young adult chaplain of local universities. That's what he would do. They would say, don't call me father, because you know our retreat in the woods will, or in the mountains, they're big hikers, will end, because they'll find out I'm a priest and they'll kill me. So call me Wujek, which means uncle. So that's what all the young people called them, right? And the jeweler's shop is funny, because how many of you have ever read the jeweler's shop? You ever read it? No, no, not even a T-Rex hand. You've read it? Nice, nice. So the jeweler's shop is weird, Weird, weird. So the Pope is a poet. He thinks with a poetic mind. Now, when he was oppressed by the Nazis, uh, they would do these things called the rhapsodic theater of the word, where it was illegal to do any nationalist Polish plays. You couldn't do anything to celebrate the Polish spirit. So what they began doing was a form of cultural resistance, where they would put on these plays, but they would do it in like a one-bedroom apartment, and they'd push all the furniture to the wall, and people would bring in their own chairs and sit on the floor and all this stuff. And they would have like 200 people in a tiny apartment. And they, well, they couldn't put on a four-hour-long play. So what they do is they would take the play and reduce it to a series of its most important monologues. And from there, they would craft... I mean, can you imagine doing a one-man play or one-woman play, and you had to just recite lines and try to convey, because you are desperately trying to keep your Polish identity in the midst of Nazi oppression. And here's the crazy thing, right? The Pope was a theater geek, when you think about this, and an athlete, so he's kind of like Zac Efron's character in High School Musical 1, right? He was an athlete as well, as well as a theater geek. But all of those combined, right? They combined, and here's this man knowing that by presenting this play, he, could, he would be executed. So what formed him, and this is why this is so weird, is it's, it's a play, it's a meditation on marriage that occasions into a drama or a play. But it's essentially a series of people giving monologues. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to read this a little bit before. I'm going to refresh myself. And I'm in my house. My boys are upstairs. They're covered in mud because boys, and uh, they were going upstairs to get clean so we could come here. And, which is why we were late and I was running like a crazy person running around. And I just start reading it and I always hated the first act. It's so boring. So I'm reading the first act and I'm just like crying in my kitchen. I'm like, I am so emotional. So, um, and this is the funniest part. Can I show you this? This is the funniest part. Uh, this is my ex-girlfriend. So, whoopsie. I, <laughs> I, I kept the one, I accidentally threw away the one my wife gave me and kept the one from the, don't tell my wife. So, uh, <laughs> See, you know, love is a complicated thing. Okay. So what is Pope John Paul, what is the theology of the body? The theology of the body consists of 129 Wednesday audiences. You guys know what a Wednesday audience is? So what the Pope does on Wednesdays, he reads the Angelus. There's people in the Paul VI Center, which is the ugliest building in Vatican City. And you're sitting in this big, big theater. And he gives, he's on a little stage or whatever, or a big stage, and he comes out. And everyone from all over the world, you have to kind of register beforehand, you're introduced. 
So I went with Franciscan University of Steubenville, 175 ugly Americans going, and man, we showcased it. It was awesome. So the Scottish guy who was kind of like our tour guide, he was like, listen, don't do what a lot of churches do. Don't sit there and like sing some Gregorian chant or sing some whatever. Sing something from your country, something that embodies the spirit of what you are. And I'm like, well, we're from the Rust Belt of Ohio. Uh, I know, because we're a charismatic university, we're gonna sing uh, uh, an old school charismatic song, Let the Fire Fall. So they go through and, I, and I, somehow I convinced 174 of my fellow classmates that this was a good idea. So this is what they did. So they go through and you know the Polish guy gets up and he welcomes all the Polish churches. Then the Mexican guy gets up and he welcomes all the Mexican churches and groups and choirs and all this stuff. And then the very last person is the American guy. And he gets up some Monsignor, whatever, and he's introducing all these people. And it's Pope John Paul II. It's one of his last Wednesday audiences that he ever does. He is wheeled out in a wheelchair. He's hunched over. You could tell the end is nigh, right? And uh, then he goes, and the students of Franciscan University, and he couldn't even finish the sentence. We were already on the, standing on the arm, because it was the foldable seats. I'm on the armrests, screaming like a soccer hooligan. And I'm like, no, JP, do it! And we just scream. And then I go, one, two, three. And then we all started screaming, trying to sing, come Holy Spirit, let the fire fall. And all the people around us are like. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Pope is smiling. And with his strength, he's just blessing us over and over again, right? He's, he's on show, and he's just giving us his blessing. Like, come, Holy Spirit, let the fire fall. And then we finish, and then we just start chanting, JP2, we love you, for like two minutes, ruining everything, delaying everything. So then we finally sit down, and right in front of us, really funny, they had the Italian Air Force, there's a bunch of people from the Italian Air Force, and they were like, that was awesome. Well, that was awesome. Okay, so... That was a good impression, you gotta admit, of an Italian Air Force person. So, uh, so we go, and at the very end, he gives a wonderful talk, and at the very end, he's being wheeled out, and everyone's standing up, and we were, you know, like, you know, I had something in my eye, air conditioning. And uh, we get up, and they're wheeling him out, and he stops, and I was watching him, because I'm like, I wanna savor every moment of this. And he's halfway off the stage, and he's gesturing, he's pulling on the guy's sleeve, and the guy's like, oh! And he looks out, and he turns around, and he wheels him up to the microphone, and he says, and to the students, JP2 loves you too. And we're all like, <laughs> you know, it was awful. So I love Pope John Paul II. I love Pope John Paul II. Funny story. My girlfriend broke up with me in high school shortly before World Youth Day in Toronto. And I went to go see the Pope there. And he, I mean, oh, he, that's where he said the famous line, for you are not the sum of your weaknesses. I, I don't know. That was... That was kind of becoming a Polish to a Mexican accent. So we'll, we'll just drop the accents for now. For now. You got to see my, uh, my Russian. It becomes uh, not Russian very quickly. Um, he said, you are not the sum of your weaknesses and failures, but rather you are the sum of the Father's love for you in Christ Jesus. And your real, oh, no, you are the sum of the Father's love for you and your real capacity to become sons or daughters in Christ Jesus. And I remember that line just kind of hung in the air over all of us. Because I think in a very big way, we're all asking large questions. Sometimes those large questions get manifested in stupid, simple ways, right? We're all asking the big questions. Why am I here? What is this life for? You know, where do I come from? Where am I going? What's the point of all of this? And it's funny because those big questions often get lost inside little things when we don't have them resolved. How many of y'all have ever seen the movie Mean Girls? 
I love me, girl. That's so funny. No, okay, okay. The homeschool quota is up a lot today. Uh, just kidding, we homeschool? How dare you? Um, in the movie Mean Girls, it's about Lindsay Lohan's character. She's like a mis- family, is like a missionaries in Africa. And then she comes back as a teenager. So she was homeschooled. She knows nothing of peer pressure. And she just got to study animals on the savanna or whatever. So she comes back, and now she's in high school. Do, have you seen the Mean Girls? You know what I'm talking about? So now she's in high school, and then the Mean Girls kind of latch onto her. And there's this one scene where there's these girls, and they're all in a room, and they have a, a big mirror. And they're like, oh, my shoulders are too broad. He's like, yours are too broad. Mine are too narrow. Oh, look at my nose. It's off center a little bit. And they're going through these insanely specific critiques of their body, right? And they're going through all of this stuff. And at this line, she goes, wow. I, and Lindsay Lohan's character is kind of thinking, she goes, listen to this stuff. I remember when the only thing you were like, am I too fat or too skinny? But these girls are strangely specific about what they hate about themselves, right? And this is the amazing thing that I think we are losing sight of and what Pope John Paul is trying to do for modern man and woman. And what that is precisely is we have lost sight of what it means to be human. We are losing what it means to be human very, very easily, very, very comfortably, very, very quickly. We are yielding our human identity to the stuff with lights and whistles and sounds and speakers very easily because it's easy to substitute technology in place of virtue. It's easy to use things to fill a void of my heart, even though I know it doesn't fill it. There's always more things for me to consume to try to find that satisfaction. And so what Pope John Paul wanted to do, because of his love for young people and because of his years of ministry with young people, young adults especially, people in their 20s, what he wanted to do was to speak not just the truth of the church's teaching in forms of prohibitions on, you know, sex and procreation and all that stuff. No, what he wanted to do was talk about the beauty and the, what he called the fairness of human love. Someone asked him, why do you want all of us young people to just get married? And he goes, I don't. I want you to pursue whatever vocation. But I love human love because human love is fair. It's beautiful. And I think oftentimes we lose sight of its beauty. I think so much is out in our faces today that we lose track of what God is actually doing in our lives, calling us to love and to be loved. And we lose sight of that because the actual project of loving someone and becoming lovable, which is something that we don't ever put on ourselves anymore. I don't have to become lovable. You are forced to love me for who I am. And it's like, okay, sure, sure. But we gotta be good. We gotta be true. We gotta be beautiful. And I don't mean in the silly, stupid, cheap, my shoulders are too broad, my shoulders are too narrow sort of way. I mean, we have to become those types of people who dare to dream to be worthy of the gift of love, both to give and to receive. So this is what I know about every man, woman, and child in this room is everyone in here, and some of you have heard me say this, so just bear with me. Everyone in this room, regardless of who you are, how old or how young you are, everyone in this room wants to be known and you want to be loved. Everyone in this room wants those two things, right? The old Baltimore Catechism, what's the meaning of life? To know, love, and serve God in this life so that we can be happy with him in the next. Guess what? Every human being wants to be known and want to be loved. Everyone, without exception. There has never been a person who does not want those two things. And if they don't want those two things, it's because something terrible has happened along the way. So what does it mean to be known and to be loved? Well, think about it. 
What does it mean to be loved but not known? Right? To be loved. I love you, but not known. Who are you? Right? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I always liken it to that. Uh, a couple months ago, I went to a Taylor Swift concert. God, I love Taylor Swift. Any Taylor Swift fans? Just me? Okay, good, good. <laughs> so I'm there, me and Tay-Tay and, uh, you know, 6,000 of my closest sixth grade friends, and we're just sitting there rocking out. And I'm just, you know, basking in glory. It ends. Baby, just say yes. I'm crying. Everyone's crying. So we're walking out the door, and she comes back out on stage. And she says, and to my fans. And we're all like, oh, that's me. And she says, I love you. I called my wife on the phone. I was like, honey. I was homeschooled. I don't know what it means to be in a love triangle. What do we do? Do we call a lawyer? Like, where do we go from here, honey? Like, come on. We all, like, what does that mean for Tay-Tay to say, I love, if she really loved me, how come she never once responded to any of my numerous tweets at Taylor Swift 13? She never once did any of them. No. So when we think about this, right, to be known and to be loved, what if we are loved but not known? Well, she doesn't know me. I mean, I literally mean nothing to her because she doesn't know me. It's not like she's sitting out there and like, I wonder if there's a 40-year-old with a beard who's given up on life. Like, I want to I know that man. Like, no, she doesn't, she doesn't know me. Right? When she thinks of me, she sees ticket sales, merchandise, so that she can finally get that yacht in the Mediterranean with the helicopter landing pad. Like, I mean nothing to her, right? But so we think of it. The only thing she can have is some sort of vague, yes, we did it. Another million, right? Every tour, she makes $400 million. Just think about that. Just think about that. Which is the price I spent to take my boys to Dude Perfect last weekend. It's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, so then, in this, what about the opposite? Okay, just for, I did not actually go to a Taylor Swift concert. I didn't do that. That was a lie, just to get the point across. Anyhow, now what about the opposite? What about the opposite? What about to be known but not loved? Right, so we had love but not known. That is cheap, superficial. You can't build a life on that. I don't know you, but I love you. Huh. I'm not honest, but you're interesting. Right? So when we sit there and we think about this, to be loved but not known is cheap. Can't build a life on that, and you wouldn't. What about the opposite? To be known but not loved. I would say that for everyone in this room, that's our greatest nightmare. For your father, maybe, to say to you, I know you, I know the real you. Why would I ever love you? To have a spouse say that, a boyfriend or girlfriend, an ex Right, we're ter- I mean, think about those words. Who could ever in their right mind love you? That's our greatest nightmare. The re- I know the real you. Not this fake mask you wear. I know the real you. To be loved but not known is cheap and superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest nightmare. So you know what we do? We turn around and we rearrange our lives to say, well, it's good enough to be loved and not known. So we're fake and we posture and we pose and we put on 10,000 masks and we call ourselves, well, this is my true self in order to finally get that sort of approval. Sheryl Crow said in one of her annoying songs in the late 90s, lie to me, I'll believe it, just don't leave me. And so, what do we do? How do we break free from this trap that many of us have had this experience, haven't we? We've had the experience of being loved but not really known. 
because maybe we were fake or maybe we were afraid of what the other person would think. What about the others? Of someone who said, now I know the real you, how could I ever love you? You know, I work here at St. Anthony's. I've been here in an adult faith formation role now for almost eight years. And after the first year, when people realized I wasn't a deacon, they're like, hey, there's my, I'm not, I'm not a deacon. Then they finally, like, it was about a year into it that they started trusting me, adults. I used to be a youth minister for like 15 years. Then adults started coming to my office and they would sit across from me and they would tell me their problems. I'll never forget the first day. This guy's like, my marriage is falling apart. I've had affairs. My wife found out. My kids hate me. What do I do? And I remember the sheer panic that came in because I was, I literally, this is a true story. I literally looked over my shoulder. I'm in an office. The only thing behind me is a wall. I look over my shoulder for an adult to tell, right? Like, I'm like, oh, this is above my pay grade. I need an adult. Because when you're in youth ministry, you're just like, well, I got to go to my boss, got to go to the pastor, got to go to their parents, and then I'm done, right? But this, I was like, oh no, it's me. So we confront this stuff over and over and over again. People come in with their broken, hurting hearts. And what do we do? I'm like that guy in the family. When everything is falling apart, all of a sudden I haven't heard from you in six months, now you call me? That's my role. I've just, i got to accept it. But that's what people do. I'm the fixer when everything is falling apart. And they call me up and they're like, oh my gosh, everything is awful. Everything is bad. She walked out on me. He finally left me. All this stuff is blowing up. What do I do? Hurting hearts. Well, what happened? See, this is the problem right now in our society. And that problem, as G.K. Chesterton said when someone asked him to write a book called What's Wrong with the World, he said, eh, it's me. See, the problem is, I don't want to confront my fear. I don't want to confront my wounds. I don't want to admit that I have mommy and daddy issues because I'm 40 years old. I have a beard. I pay a mortgage. I'm good, but I'm not. Right? And I don't want to admit that my marriage is having problems. And I don't want to admit that sometimes I get overwhelmed with depression. And I don't even want to get out of bed. But I put on a smile on my face and I talk to you people. Just kidding. <laughs> You're like, oh gosh, is he joking? Or, oh no. <laughs> I just want everyone to feel uncomfortable, not just the teenagers when we talk about sex. So when we, uh, no, but this is what we do, right? Like, we, we cover over and we hide and we print. And now, there's a reason why we do this, especially as adults. It's because we still got to pay the mortgage. The tax man cometh, right? We still got to work. We still got to do. So we soldier on. But guess what doesn't ever happen? We don't ever stop periodically and get our heart looked at. We don't ever stop and address the wounds that we've been carrying, sometimes for literally decades. And we have shame that we've suppressed and we have hurt that we've ignored. And then all of a sudden, we go to the confessional, and we're kneeling down or whatever, awkwardly knee-to-knee with the priest in front of us, and what do we say? I, I just don't know why I'm so angry all the time. Or maybe we go to counseling. We're like, my wife, man, she just makes me so mad. She just knows how to push those buttons. Right? My husband, he, ne- he, just, he just turns off. He's just not engaged, blah, blah, blah. And we hear the same things. Over and over again, the same problems, because we don't want to address the wounds that we received when we were in middle school, when we were in high school, when we were in college. I can tell you that the number one source of marital difficulties are unaddressed wounds from people's high school years. 
Many of them learned how to love by watching mom and dad who did not know how to love. They, they did the best they could, and I'm not blaming them. Yes, I am. But I'm not, <laughs> I'm a Jungian, not a Freudian. There's no blaming mommy today. That's a Frasier joke. You didn't laugh at it. That's why Frasier went off the air. Um, <clears throat> some of you are like, but it's coming back. I know. Okay. But in this, we have to understand that the theology of the body is not given so that we can have some fancy argument to sling at our whatever relatives at Thanksgiving. This is an understanding of what God is doing in human hearts. And the understanding that first and foremost, our human hearts come from the fall. That's what Pope John Paul calls the historical man. Right? You and I know we are made for greatness. You and I know that we long for a love that never ends. That's why we're so disappointed in the actual people that we actually love and who actually love us. We're like, but you can love me so much better. And they're thinking the same thing about you the whole time. But that's where we step back and we realize prehistorical man, man before the fall, man, male and female, God created them. Before the fall, before sin corrupted, we have these hopes written deep into the very fabric of our heart that longs for something more. Even when what we have is good, that longs for something more. And then when we fail, when there is the fall being replicated in our own lives, what do we do? Well, we blame the other. What happens when we refuse to forgive someone whom we love that hurt us? Right? What we do is we exclude them. We exclude ourselves first from the company of sinners. And then we exclude them from those who are forgiven, the company of the forgiven. So we're like, you of all people are not worthy of my mercy. Now, I know I did the same thing last week, but was, that was different. You were malicious. I, I had my reasons. Right? And so what we end up doing is we end up coming at our, even our most intimate and loving relationships, kind of sometimes with our hands up, ready to fight. But more often, I would say from a Christian audience, in a defensive posture. Because we don't want to hurt the other, but we also kind of sort of don't want to give ourselves away without getting some in return. And so we play these silly games of cat and mouse. We play these silly little petty, petty squabbles of guilt trips and manipulation and silence and all this stuff in order to finally get that person to see how awesome I am and to give me what I deserve. And so what the theology of the body is meant to do is to speak to you as a man or a woman, to speak into the silence of your heart and to actually tell you who you are and whose you are by drawing your mind out of just your own individual problems and getting them to see it from a divine perspective. And when we have a divine perspective, it actually gives us the most important subjective view. It's like we're staring at a mirror all the time, but it's a warped mirror. And what God wants to do is he wants to clean it and fix the mirror so you can actually see, okay, this is who I am. This is who I'm made to be. You made me in your image and likeness. And so the theology of the body, 129 Wednesday audiences given over five years. The only time he took a break was for two things. One was uh, there was a big holy year that he devoted a lot of the Wednesday audiences to that. And the other time he was shot by a Turkish, co Turkish communist. So, you know, we'll, we'll let him have a pass, I guess, on that one. I mean, the last time I was shot by a Turkish communist, I still showed up to work, but whatever. Um, but what he did, so he gave these Wednesday audiences. Why a Wednesday audience? It's literally the worst format for giving this. Why? Because they're a different audience every week. 
There's different nationalities every week. Well, that was the point. This wasn't a message meant for any one person or any one group. Not just the nerds who are going to read, but hey, you're here. And for this one moment that I have with you, I'm going to tell you not just about morality. I'm going to tell you about your identity in Christ Jesus who redeemed you. And so one of the amazing things that he did is week after week after week, he addressed the very topic that Pope Paul VI hadn't spoken of since 1968. And when he published Humanae Vitae, it felt like a bomb on the church. Priests and theologians stood on the steps of Catholic University of America in open and willful dissent against the Pope's doctrine and almost split the church in half. It sent Paul VI into a depression. He never spoke or wrote massively again on that. He would speak to smaller audiences, but not a worldwide audience again for, the, for just affirming the church's teaching on contraception. He would give this address. He was afraid that if he spoke out again, it would rupture the church in half. And then JP2 spent five years talking about it, uninterrupted, except for Turkish communists and such and so forth. He does this because he wants us to understand that the church's vision of human love and the divine plan is not sex is dirty and disgusting. So save it for someone you love, right? See, this is the false images that some of us, especially the older generation, were given when it came to marital intimacy, sex, whatever you, you know, however it was taught to you. It was often like, ooh, no, no, no. You said I do? Okay, go for it, right? And so what that does is, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, it created what we call the Protestant purity culture ethic. And this is what I was kind of raised in, because a lot of Catholic youth groups began borrowing heavy from the Protestant, evangelical, non-denominational world. And one of that movement was of purity culture, right? Famously, this guy wrote a book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that kind of started off a firestorm, but the purity rings and chastity, true love weights, cards, and I've been at conferences, I signed them, threw it on the floor, but after I signed them, no, I'm just kidding, but yeah, I had all this stuff, we did all this stuff, but this is the image that it made us have of purity, which, of course, the woman feels an undue burden in this. It is simply this, you're perfect right now, intact, virginal, pure. You're like placed on top of a mountain. All you have to do is fight to stay on top of the mountain. If you fall off the mountain and lose your virginity, many, I remember this when I was in high school, girls would say, I don't think I can go to heaven anymore. Like, I, I'm, I'm, that's how much this was kind of built up in their heads that it was an unpardonable sin. And I was like, what are you talking about? You go to confession. You literally have the same examination of conscience that I do. It's just in the sixth commandment. Like, look it up and go confess it. But this notion was, I'm perfect and I have to stay intact just the way I am. And that's a false, non-Catholic version of morality. What do we have? We have not abstinence, we have, which is means saying no or refraining. We have chastity. Now, the word chastity has fallen on hard times lately. Celebrities ironically named their children that. But the idea of chastity is <laughs> very ironic, it, especially the celebs that do that. It is, uh, hi, uh, our vision is not you are perfect and you're sitting on top of a mountain. It's you and I are imperfect, and we're standing at the bottom of that mountain. And that mountain is called virtue. I'm not born perfectly virtuous. I mean, I am, but most of you are not, right? <laughs> like, virtue is something that is acquired through education and deliberated effort and repeated, repeated effort. Like, 
You have to will to do this. So think about purity from these two perspectives, okay? One, I'm perfect and pure, and to stay this way, I just have to say no. Until I'm married. And if I should fall, that means I'm at the bottom of the mountain and I can never get back up to the top of the mountain. So what do you think happened to many women, but also men, who had that conception of purity when they, you know, watching a Chris Farley movie night, late at night when uh, mom and dad weren't home? What do you think happened? They fell, the guilt overwhelmed them, and then in order to escape the mountain of guilt that was now on them, they shoved it all aside and just said, well, if this is who I am, then fine. Whereas the Catholic notion is, okay, every day I take a step up that mountain. I'm making a decision, a willful effort. I don't want to be used, I want to love. I don't want to use others, I want to love others. I take another step up that mountain. I don't want to become a commodity. I don't think other people's bodies should be commodities. You take another step up that mountain. And the goal is that with your freedom, you develop within yourself the capacity for self-mastery, self-control. Now, self-control is practically a dirty word today. Because you know why? You can't sell anything to people who have self-control. Right? I mean, think about that. Like, our whole conception of, like, why would you want self-control? Get the life you want now. Right? That's what, this is why credit cards exist. I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. I don't know if you, anywho. Um, this is why all of this stuff kind of happens in our lives. This message that it's, and it's not just a sexual message. It's not just like, hey, God, just have sex. Just have sex right now. Like, no one's, well, a lot of people are saying that, but not in the commercials. What they're saying is just give in and indulge. The life you want is just one purchase away, right? What are they doing? They are selling you happiness, but not through you ever becoming better. Isn't that funny? No, it's not. <laughs> you shake your no. Don't shake your head. No, it's not funny because this is what JP two in Love and Responsibility talks about when he actually towards halfway through the book gets onto the contraception side. He says, "Listen, this is what modern man does. In the place of virtue, we insert technology. But instead of and in the absence of love, we rely on technique. How many of y'all heard the podcasts of Beyond the Bulletin before you came here? Did any of you listen?" Good Lord, yeah, that's about the ratings. Uh, yikes. <laughs> so me and Nate did a podcast on this because I wanted, um, I wanted adults, parents to hear kind of some of the stuff that we were talking about. But I said this to people, in the pl- or to Nate, in the place of love, when love is absent, what do we do? We replace it with technique. What do I mean by that? And I said, just go stand in the grocery store at the checkout and read the magazines. 101 ways to curl his toes, blah, blah, blah. See, we don't love. There's no mutual self-giving. So what we do is we try to come up with techniques to replace love. Because we've jettisoned love for lust. We've jettisoned commitment for right now, for the immediate, for the hookup culture. The hookup culture wasn't a thing for my older brother's life. When he was in high school, like, people did it. But it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a part of our culture. Then, 10 years later, my older brother, Brian, who's actually coming down tomorrow from Kansas. I don't know why I told you that. Uh, if you guys want to know what I'm eating for breakfast tomorrow, I can tell you that too. Uh, but he, when he was in high school, that wasn't like a thing. When I was in high school, it became a thing. Friends with benefits and all of that stuff became part of the ethos, became part of the atmosphere of just being in high school. 
Because that's the immediacy. If only you had this, then finally you'd be happy. And the thing that too many of my friends realize is they weren't buying and selling items. They were the ones being bought and sold. They were the things that became commodities. They were the persons who reduced to objects. And they end up growing up in this atmosphere where their bodies were being reduced from revealing the person to just an object, a collection of body parts that makes someone else happy for a moment. And the moment they stop making them happy, they don't exist for them anymore. And so what Christ wants to do is he wants to enter into these wounds in our culture. He wants to enter into these wounds in our own hearts and in all the compromises and all the false things that we believe. And he wants to tell you who you are. So this is the Catholic vision of what it means to be alive. Number one, you are a human person. You have a human nature. What is a human nature? A human nature, you are not, this is not, this is heresy, this is not Catholic theology. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said in his wonderful book, The Everlasting Man, the Catholic Church is always getting condemned for things that it condemned as heresies. Number one, Catholics do not believe you are angels. Did you know that? You were not an angel. Special, just kidding. No, you're, <laughs> you're not an angel. When you die, you don't become an angel. Did you know that? That is like the most common, most people are like, well, what happens when the bell rings, right? You don't get your wings. You're not an angel. You're a human. Angels are a, a category of purely spiritual beings. You are not. You have a body. So dogs have souls. But they don't have spiritual souls, or what we would call rational souls. Human beings have souls. Soul in Latin, animus, means that which animates. Everything that has a body that moves and grows, plants, all that stuff, they all have souls. But they have natural souls. We have supernatural souls, also known as spirits, or spiritual souls, or rational souls. That's why the definition of a man by Lateran Council 3, and as well as by Socrates, is the definition of a man is a Rational, animal. Animal, what we share in. Rational, our specific difference. Why does this matter? Because the human being is a composite being of spirit and body. You are your body. The number one lie in our world today is that you are not your body. You are your mind or your consciousness or your spirit, whatever term people want to use. That's what we reduce it to. So what we do is we say, I have instrumentalized my body. If I were to walk up to you right now and punch you in the nose, you would not, strike, you would not say, you, you struck this nose, right? You would say, you hit me, right? And you would sue me, right? And it'd be worth it. Uh, you have a very punchable face. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. <laughs> every day, every day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't think people are going to come back, um, which is fine. I get the day off. Uh, I wanted to watch the Batman again. Anywho, uh, when we talk about the body, oftentimes people have this false notion of what it means to be human. That I have my soul is trapped in a body. I remember I was debating an atheist online, which is stupid. And uh, I knew it, but it was late at night and I had a keyboard. So uh, I'm debating this guy and he was like, oh, you believe your body's like trapped in the soul? And I go, no, 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 no. The soul is not inside the body like a ghost in a machine, right? Like a puppeteer, like some meat puppet that the soul, is, that's a gross phrase, but that is operating, right? That's not it. The body is inside the soul. That is the proper way to think of it. The body is within the soul. The soul animates and is a part of every inch of the body. Everything that is the body is the body. It belongs to the soul. It's animated. It has life because it has a soul. And we have a spiritual soul. So what does it mean to be a human person? To be a human person, it does not mean that I'm just purely spiritual. It means 
that I am a composite. Part of our frustration is these two sides sometimes feel like they're at war with each other. And so what we want to do, and this is the great project of the theology of the body, this is why this stuff matters for us to think about, is I and you, we need to learn how to love our bodies. Okay? And what that means is love our bodies as they really are. And I'm not talking about body positivity. I'm not talking about healthy at any size. I mean, I'm kind of talking about that. But that's mostly to myself late at night. But when we're talking about this, what it means to love your body is you have a body. And it's only your body. Now, your body is going to age. We don't want to think about that. But one day, things are going to droop and sag and get weird spots. And you don't know where they came from. And I remember when. But this is your body. It's not someone else. And it's, here's the deal. It's not even your body. It's you. It's you. You at every age. But what we want to do is we're so afraid of our body and we're so alienated because of sin from our bodies that we end up being not at home in the body. But that's who you are. Your memories, the things you did, the scars you have, the stretch marks from bearing children. Like these things are beautiful. Because they're you. They have meaning that is greater. But what we have instead is we have high definition 4K screens all the time telling us your body isn't enough. But your father seems to think that it is. And so what do we do? Well, thank God Botox just dropped $5 in price. I can go around the corner and I can clear up some wrinkles because that's not who I think of myself as. And then I can go and I can put on makeup, or I can go and I can work out until I collapse, or I can do all of these things to shape and mold my body because actually I'm terrified of what happens if, I aren't, if I'm not looked upon and seen as the beauty that I desperately want to be. And this is a thing for men as much as it is for women. It's just experienced in a masculine and feminine way. And so what we need to do is understand that this is the body that God gave you. This is the reason why someone like, uh, oh gosh, what was his name? George Orwell, 1984 Animal Farm, right? He said, everyone has the face they deserve at 50. Usually I say that to high school students and they laugh. I say that to older people and they're like, that's not funny. That's not funny. That's not funny at all. I'm going to punch you. See you in the parking lot, son. So when we talk about this and we start looking at our understanding, right? Think about this. One day you will die. And your family will come and they will stare at your body, your corpse. And they will love and they will miss and they will have hurt and sorrow and maybe joy that you've gone to a better place or whatever. And then we will pray. Here's the deal. If you're on your just future reference, if you're about to die, will you just call the priest and get last rites for the love of God? No one does that anymore. Get last rites. Get that anointing of the sick. Okay, anyhow. And then we have a Catholic funeral. Don't cremate the body until after the funeral. Do that after. Okay. So this public service announcement was brought to you by Father David Huss. Uh, when we talk about the body, like, we will sit there, and it's not like, but you know the difference between a cadaver and a sleeping body. We know that something substantial has changed about that body. And yet it's still you. And one day, when the trumpet sounds and Christ comes in glory, he will restore what we call the resurrection of the dead, your bodies, 
That's why priests, when they celebrate Ad Orientum, they face east, not because the tabernacle's right in front of them, but because that's the, 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 the way of the resurrection. Christ comes from the east. So we face the risen Lord. And so the whole point of this is one day you will have your body in heaven for all eternity. So you should start loving your body right now. Yes, it'll be healed and it'll be imperishable, as St. Paul says in the Harry Potter verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you ever read Harry Potter, that's okay. Anyway, so this notion is, yes, you will have a new glorified spiritual body, but it will be entirely your body. Just as he made the first man from the dust of the earth, so will he remake you in the new man Christ Jesus from whatever dust of you is left. And the beautiful thing is you will be the artist that God died and rose to make you for all eternity. But you could say in a very real way, like Socrates said, it takes a whole person's life in order to know thyself. So too does it take a whole life in order to love the gifts that God has given you. To be okay at being you. And that's what we need to do. Now, this is what many of our experiences, maybe not yours, but probably the person sitting next to you, right? This, this is me right here. And this is what sin does, okay? Sin takes who I am, my image, my identity of myself, and it crinkles it up. The devil wants this to be distorted, right? Wants it to be broken, wants it to be ruined. So here's the deal. We have one of two options. Oftentimes, in our culture says, ew, gross, throw it away. Get rid of it. It's not good enough anymore. Right? And we don't believe that. We don't believe that. But then, sometimes the pendulum swings the other way and the culture says, this this is all there is. This is what you have to, in fact, glorify in this. How about not having, it's not about not having shame, it's about being shameless. Let's embrace the brokenness. And what Christ says is he gives us a third way. We don't throw it away. We don't then say, yes, the crinkled, damaged, distorted, broken life is the true life. What Christ wants to do is he comes in with his incarnation and he begins to work from the inside out, in order, like he says, to make all things new. And this is what it means to be redeemed. A really stupid illustration to draw one simple point. Christ doesn't throw you away in order to make something new in your place. He said, see how I make all things new. So your story, your story is caught up in what Christ is doing to renew the very face of the earth and bring redemption into this world. Your story, with the wounds and the bruises, self-inflicted, others inflicted, Christ can make new. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. That's what we kind of do. Because we want to be loved, even if it means not known. But see, the difference is Christ knows you all the way down to the soles of your feet and loves you all the way to the stars. He knows every horrible thought you have ever had, adults, about your boss, kids, about your parents. He knows every thought you, not, not your kids, other people's kids. Uh, he knows every, like the, th I mean, think about that. Think of like the worst thing you ever, well, I mean, don't think about it right now, but the worst thing you ever thought, he knows. And he loves you. See, the difference with the world is it knows you without loving you or it loves you without truly knowing you. He's the one who knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you all the way to the stars. In fact, he loves you so much that he is not content leaving you distorted and hurting. He comes to heal you. 
but he does it in a unique way. He does it in a way, like that baby just said, he does it in a way, I'll translate, <laughs> so that you know that he too has the scars. That he too knows what it's like to be known but not loved, to be rejected. To have people say, I love you, and to watch those very same people run away when it matters most. He knows it. He entered into the very pit of human despair. All of our hopes, all of our longings being shattered right in front of his eyes. And his mother watched the whole time. As he let himself be emptied so that we might be made full. See, the thing that drives me insane about working with people in the Catholic Church is that we think, been there, done that, heard that all before. But we don't realize how insanely practical the cross of Jesus Christ actually is in our lives. And what do I mean by that? It's simply this, that God loves you so much that though he did not have to, though he had every right to do the opposite, he entered into our story. Think about the dignity. Christians don't hate the body. We don't despise physicality, sensuality, or pleasure. He invented it. We worship the guy who authored it. Right? And yet he, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, Jesus Christ took our sin upon him. The very thing that renders us unlovely, he took unto himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So you want to talk about what is the dignity of your body. When you go home tonight and you see yourself in front of a mirror and all the thoughts come up, maybe good, maybe bad, I don't know you. But at the end of the day, when you look, you have to see something more than just a shape. You have to see that you're made in the image of God. And that God in whose image you're made pursued you with the cross and the resurrection. That he loves you. Jesus says on the night before he died, when he's gathered with the apostles in the upper room, he says, I no longer call you servants, for servants do not know what their master is doing. Rather, I call you friends. He says, no one has greater love than this, he who lays down his life for his beloved. So here's the deal. You and I have been given cheap knockoff versions of what it truly means to love. And the cheap knockoff versions are, listen, Love is difficult, love is hard, so just settle for lust. Love is difficult, love is hard, so just settle for books and ignore people, right? Just watch Netflix. You don't have to chill with anyone, just watch Netflix. Right, this is the lies that we tell ourselves. I'm better off alone, or I'm better just being used. One of my favorite stories that illustrates the point, it's a terrible story, but Abigail Favale in her book says that she had plane landed, they were uh, on a taxiing to the, to the runway, or to the whatever, uh, gate, and she looked at this guy, and everyone, you know, as soon as a plane lands, and you can, you unbuckle your seatbelt, you stand up, and everyone pulls out their phone, take it off airplane mode, oh, whoops, it wasn't on airplane mode the whole time, and then you go and you start to, well, this guy, she said, about 65-year-old man, gets up, stands up, opens up his phone, gets it off airplane mode, first app he opens up is Tinder. New city, new town, swipe, swipe, nope, nope, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And she said, she's watching this man right in front of her, who just landed in a new city, scrolling through which hookup he's going to have today. And she, he's like, to him, those women are trying to fit 
some preconceived notion of what he thinks is attractive. Nope, 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 maybe. Nope, 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 maybe. And she's looking at this and she's like, those are human beings that he's just swiping away. And this is what we've done. We have an entire industry that is predicated upon, am I swipeable or not? This is how we've commoditized our, even our loneliness. We sell. So what Christ wants to do is he wants to enter into that loneliness and he wants to show you a better way. Do I have any questions? No one has any questions whenever I talk because I just yell so much. And so, Diane, do you have any questions? Huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, double plus good. Okay. Uh, now, let's get into the actual theology of the body instead of me just doing all this preamble. This is what I want to talk about. Now, you have that document. I want you to open it up to the first page. Now, we're going to be done. I'm probably going to wrap up in like 20 minutes. Is that okay? You're like, no, I paid for 830. I'm like, who did you pay? Because that person just stole all of your money. <laughs> right there, if you need some extras. When sexual union is oriented toward love, isn't that funny, that word, oriented? It's funny how that word sneaks into our lives. Oriented. You know what the word oriented means? It means to face east. Anyhow. <laughs> the orient, to be oriented. The Catholic Church gave that to the world. You're welcome. Okay. When sexual union is oriented toward love and life, towards love and life, it builds families and in turn cultures that live the truth of love and life. When sexual union is oriented towards love and life, it builds families and in turn cultures that live the truth of love and life. What do you do when you want to annihilate fam or cultures? You go after families. The number one complaint I hear from Mexican families, right? And I'm starting to hear it from our Nigerian families now. And I tell them, you got a lot in common, so let's talk about it. The number one thing I hear is, my children are losing our culture. Over and over again, people say this. Over and over again. In fact, I would say this is the number one complaint I hear from parents today at our parish. That's kind of standard across the board. I hear this all the time. Well, I, I feel so bad. I came to this country. I want, I want hopes and dreams and everything America promises. But I look at my kids and they look at me like I'm crazy because big family, you keep the old ways, you have these traditional things in your life and, and they don't even know any of it. See, this is the hard thing about being an American where at least I know I'm free. And I won't, okay. The idea of this is that we've also become rootless cosmopolitans. We become detached, decoupled. I remember one day I was doing this theology of the body thing, and this guy in the front row, I made the statement from JP2, as the family goes, so goes civilization. And he goes, yeah, that's right. And I said, real quick, buddy, uh, went, let's talk about this. He's like, well, government's trying to take away all of our rights. And I was like, okay, let's talk about this. Do you live in the home that your dad grew up in and that you grew up in? He goes, what? No. I said, okay, so what did you do with your dad's home? He goes, well, uh, when my daddy died, you know, we got together, we sold it, divvied up the money to the living kids. And I was like, okay, so you went to the government and got a piece of paper, and you sold that piece of paper to someone else, which gave them control. I said, if you were an ancient Israelite, they would excommunicate you. 
Because you never lose property. Property is identity, is bloodline, is family, is everything. Now, of course, they didn't have a fancy, fungible culture like we do with modern money systems. But his idea, he looked at me and he was like, oh, that's what you mean. Where the government increases, the family decreases. When the government decreases, the family increases. Because the civilization that existed, in fact, every world-renowned uh, civilization from China to Mesoamerica, every one of them, without exception, according to Harvard sociologist uh, Carl Zimmerman, is it passes through three phases. Phase one is what we call the familistic culture, where the family is the state. You can see this in tribes, right? Think of, like, I have Irish and Scottish. You've got families, tribes, clans, right? People have that, right? They still have tribes. When I went to uh, Guatemala, one of the things that they said, the women have slowly started wearing their, in the area that we went to, uh, Santa Cruz del Quiche, the Quiche people were wearing their traditional clothing where they had the patterns, kind of like a Scottish kilt, right, where the patterns represent your family and clan, but the men do not. Why? Because during the Civil War, which we funded with our tax dollars, the Protestant governor was killing Catholics left and right in these indigenous peoples in the name of stamping out communism. And they would line the men up according to the pattern in their pants to ensure that they would wipe out an entire family or clan. So the men quickly stopped wearing them so that they would not lose everything it was to be a part of these villages and these cities. It's horrific, right? But in ancient cultures, right, there was no state that we think of. The state was... I mean, you want to use the word, the state was literally the patriarchy, which means patri, right? pater, father, and archi, archos, meaning rule of, the rule of fathers. So who judges the cases? The elders, the highest men in a family, and not just every dad, but the wealthiest and most established, the old men sat at the city gates every day and they judged. They judged cases. So you, if you had a problem with your neighbor, you would go to the city gates and wait, and then you would go before the patriarch and they would adjudicate it. Why, were, why was it not considered murder if you knew the person that you killed? Because it was probably because you don't have police. You have family. You have the Hatfields and McCoys. The South is the last kind of vestige, and it's really mostly gone, of this kind of familistic culture. They're mostly agrarian. They come up as agrarian. So you have familism over here where the family is the state. Then you have statism over here where the state replaces the family. And the type of family that exists over here is called the atomistic family. Mom, dad, 1.7 kids, dog, white picket fence, blah, blah, blah. No roots, no identity, no, no great story of your family, nothing. You're just, now the state has you just where it wants you, and the corporate world has you just as you want you. Catholic philosopher named Patrick Deneen, uh, in his book, why Democracy Failed or something like that. It's a provocative title. This is going to be fun for us. But he talks about in the modern culture, in this kind of atomistic environment, the two sides of the same coin is the state and the, corporate, and the corporations. Why? Because they can't wait to sell you your new identity. They can't wait. They can't wait to tell you who you are by branding you with the latest pair of whatever. And the government can't wait to tell you and move you and shift you. One of the things that was the biggest when I was doing missionary, illegal missionary work in China was that, that was fun, uh, was, um, you know, you were illegal immigrants in your own country. And I met this woman who had multiple children, and she's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm considered, I'm not allowed to be outside of Shanghai. I'm from a province all the way on the other side, all the way on the west of my country. I'm like, well, why are you here? And she said, it's the only place where you can make money. What did she do for a living? Sewed sequins on her shirts that we buy at Target. 
And she had multiple kids in, in the face of their then one-child-only policy. And so you begin to look at this, and you see this family and, civil, and statism thing. Now, I'm not arguing for familism. I don't think I want a Hatfields and McCoy situation. But in the middle is what we would call the domestic family, where there's this kind of equilibrium. You know who you are. You know whose you are. You know your identity. You know your history, your tradition, your upbringing, your ethnicity. It's a part of who you are. You love it. You're not weirded out by it. You rejoice it. It, un- it, it gives you an understanding of who you are. But then when you go to that atomistic side, we lose sight of who we are. And we actually aren't given this. So, for instance, Georgetown University. You guys heard of Georgetown? Georgetown has a, uh, has a campus in Qatar. Qatar, right? Over in the Middle East. And what they do is they have students and they swap them. And so the American students can see what it's like in a different country. And this one guy, Joshua Miller, who's a professor at Georgetown, very much on the Patrick Deneen side of things, he goes out there and he's been a professor there for like six years. He tells these stories. It's a wonderful book called Tocqueville, uh, I mean, after Alexis de Tocqueville who wrote Democracy in America, Tocqueville in Arabia. And it's fascinating. So he'll have students, right? He's teaching a class Monday morning, 10 o'clock. At like 9.55, these kids walk in. And they're like dead to the world. Now, if he was in America, he'd be like, yikes, someone went to a caker, right? But this, he's like, where were you? He's like, oh, I was on the other side of the country. I just got back by train. And he's like, what? What were you doing there? Well, my third cousin had a wedding. And he goes, do you know him? No, never met him. Do you know like the family? No, never met him. Why did you go? Because they're family. I I told you, my third cousin. And they would sit down, right? They, they don't, they're not allowed to determine whether or not they want to go to college, what they're going to major in. Their families tell them what they will do, right? If you want to watch uh, a sample of this, watch uh, Yoshi Dreams of Sushi on Netflix. It's all about a sushi chef. And they interview his son, uh, whose son, wait, is the son Yoshi? Whatever. Yeah, Hero Dreams of Sushi and his son, J-I-R-O. His son is Yoshi, and the cameraman's like, so, and he owns a four-star restaurant, you know, in, in, in Tokyo. And he says, so do you want to do, you know, run a sushi? And he goes, in Japan, the eldest son follows in the footsteps of his father. And the cameraman's like, yeah, no, I know. But, like, do you want to do that? Do you like doing it? And he just goes, in Japan, the eldest son follows in the footsteps of his father. And the guy's like, yeah, no, I got that. Anywho, is this, do you like it? Do you like the business? Do you like cooking? And he just looks at him, and he's like, in Japan... And so the idea, every American that watches that, they're like, oh, man, he does not like it. He is forced to be there. And it's funny because Joshua Miller, Dr. Miller, talks about what it's like having his American students interact with these Cutter students. And the Cutter students and the American students, the American students are like, you are brainwashed by your dad and mom. you got to get your own identity. You're your own person. And he says, and it's shocking to hear it in reverse what the Qatar students say to the American students. And you know what they say? They say, you Americans, you don't exist. You're a ghost. Like, you have no identity. You don't even care about your last name. You don't even know anything about your family. He's like, I, I, I can name, uh, uh, you know, the last hundred years of my family. You have no idea. You're nothing. When you die, it literally won't move a needle on anyone's radar. Like, they're just like, you're nothing. And the other people look at them and like, yeah, but you're brainwashed. I might be nothing, but you're brainwashed. It's like, yeah, but this is why it's a fundamentally Western thing to try to find yourself. Like that concept of like, well, I got to uncover who I am and I I, got to spend all this money and go on a goat yoga retreat and I got to figure out who I am. 
That does not exist in countries that have more of a familistic or trustee system because they know who they are, because they belong to a chain link that goes from the highest to the lowest. And the person at the lowest, he knows or she knows who they are in relation to the rest. But what we've done is we've taken that chain down and we've dropped it and we've flattened it nice and out, right? So everyone's equal. And then we delinked the individual links. So now you're all alone. Alexi de Tocqueville said, we have given us a new man in the modern world called Homo Solus, the lonely man. And who are the loneliest men in America? The very people that we all think own and control America. White men in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They're, they're literally the loneliest group in America, and they are one of the highest suicide rates in America. Why? Because you're not meant to be alone. And they work hard their whole life, they're about to retire, and they're like, what was this for? This is not my beautiful house. Right? And they, <laughs> that whole thing, they're like, what, what was all of this? What's that great song, uh, You Can Call Me Al? Right, where he says, uh, why am I so soft in the middle, when the, this is my anthem, when the rest of my life is so hard, right? And they get to the end of it and they're like, what's it all for? I don't know, I don't care, I'm done. Because we haven't uncovered, because we keep needing to ask the big questions. But we're afraid of the answers. And the answer might be, you're doing it wrong, make a U-turn now. And we're afraid of that. But see, this is the great thing about the God that we worship. He's the God of U-turns. It's called a confessional. It's called repentance. It's called an examination of conscience. And if you do it often enough, the sting of, oh, wow, I really ruined this, starts to go away. And then you yearn to realize, oh, my goodness, I'm not just not at the top of the mountain. I'm in a whole different county. i got to get to the mountain. And then I can start walking up. But we don't want to admit that we're wrong, do we? And so what do we do? We just continue to not know ourselves and to not know the God who loves us. In the story of the prodigal son, the son wanted to detach from his father and he demanded to give him all his possessions and then he went to a far off land. He liquidized the property, now you know what that's like in a familistic culture, and then he went to a far off country. And then he spent all the money and all the horrible things happened to him. And everyone in the room that Jesus is telling that story is like, yep, that kid deserved it, that punk. Even the prostitutes, even the, the tax collectors who are in this story, who are, who are in the room with Jesus as he's making up this story in Luke 15, they're all like, yeah, that kid deserves that. Everyone in that room was on the same page. And then Jesus went one step farther and said, what did he say? He was feeding pigs and he longed to eat the slop that they were giving to the pigs, but no one would give him any. And then it came to himself saying, my father's slaves have more than enough food to spare. I will tell my father I have sinned against heaven and, again, and, and against you. I no longer am fit to be called your son. Let me instead be as a hired servant. So he walked back. Right? You know this story. We, we hear it a bajillion times. But do you notice what the son did? The pivotal moment of the whole story is, and then the son came to himself. Some translations will say, came to his senses. The whole point is he realized this needs a U-turn. Now, the sad thing is, we have our sweet 401ks and our friends and the excitement and the flashing lights that we don't see that we're feeding on the pig slop. We don't see, we don't feel the need of a U-turn until it's almost too late. At least back then, at least with this story he did. And he goes back and what does he find? A father who can't wait to punish his son? 
her father who's looking and then runs and then reclothes him, put on his feet a pair of sandals. Slaves in that culture went shoeless. Put the finest robe on him. Now we think of like, oh, it's a nice bathrobe. Maybe some terry cloth. Maybe it's silk. Who knows? Now, see, back then, you only had two or three or four of your really rich, maybe you had more than that, articles of clothing. So whose was the finest robe in the house? It was the father's. Whose rings? The rings are not just fancy rings. They're the signets of the family. They give you an identity, a name, a point, a purpose, a connection to a house, a life. He didn't make him a slave. He didn't make him a hired worker. He restored his sonship. And for many of us, this is what we need God to do in our lives. We need God, and we need to welcome him into the broken parts of our lives, the parts where we've compromised, the parts where maybe we've settled for false identities and masks instead of just owning up. Maybe we've followed one too many footsteps with some friends we should have jettisoned a long time ago, but we don't want to admit it. And we're carried away, and we'd rather hang out with them even though we know they're destroying us than be alone then be alone. And the church has fallen on such hard times lately, we don't even know how to be community anymore in a culture of atomistic, floating little bubbles who are scared to give without counting the cost. Jesus had a remedy for those outcast and forgotten. Jesus had a remedy for those who no longer felt like they belonged. In fact, Jesus' remedy for those very people was the whole reason why he came into this world. And that remedy was the church. And now the church is considering that work too messy. And it's about time that we all collectively made some U-turns. What's wrong with the world? I am. We believe that the judge of the universe is also our savior. And that changes everything. The sexual union is oriented towards love. I, we got one sentence into the document. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, now what I want you to do, I'm, we're going to do this. I'm going to do this. I don't usually do this. I'm going to do this. Just close your eyes. You don't need to look at me, the theology. Of my, I get it. I'm eye candy. I understand. <laughs> just close your eyes. And just try with your mind and your imagination, right? We're Catholics. We engage our imagination, our memories, our wills when we do meditative prayer. And I just want you to imagine Christ. You might have a favorite image, painting, statue. Maybe something came to you once in prayer and you can never shake it. Picture Christ. Come Holy Spirit. Come and kindle within us the fire of your divine love. Come Holy Spirit. Overthrow the stupid selfish walls, then barriers that we've built up around our own heart because we're afraid to love and to be known. Lord Jesus, we give you our loneliness. We give it to you, Lord. We say, I want to live a life without compromise. I'm willing to embrace loneliness because I'm never alone. 
but I need to know that you're here with me in my loneliness. Lord Jesus, I give you my sin. Maybe I'm giving you the sin, Lord, that I've committed with other people or that I've done to myself because I feel alone. Maybe, Lord Jesus, I have to give you the thoughts I think that about myself and worthlessness, Jesus, that I need to hand off to you. Because apparently you think I'm worth something if you died and rose for me. Jesus, I give you all of my little wounds and my big ones, most of whom are known only to you. Give you the wounds of how my parents gave me an example of love, other good or bad witnesses in my life to what relationships should really be. Free, mutual, self-gift. Jesus, I just ask for your Holy Spirit, the very love that unites Father to Son for all eternity, to be poured into my heart. To be poured into all of those voids, those wounds, those scar tissues that I don't even want to address. Jesus, I give you permission now. Because if you did that for me, you're never going to leave me. If you know my inmost thoughts, Lord Jesus, cleanse me then. Cleanse me with hyssop, that I may be made pure. Wash me, Lord Jesus, that I might be cleaner than snow. God, whose perfect attribute is always to have mercy, we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This day, our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Now, here's one beautiful thing about the Catholic faith that keeps our faith embodied, is we venerate his mama. Christ is not some abstraction. You know, it would be really nice if God became one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. No, we believe that God did, in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, as Galatians 4, 4 says, that Christ chose a woman. And the beautiful thing about Mary is she safeguards everything that we believe about Jesus. You know, Mary was the first one that an explicit witness of the Trinity was given to. Mary is the first and greatest disciple of Jesus Christ. She was there at his incarnation. She was there at his birth. She was there at his circumcision. She was there throughout his whole public ministry. She's the one that got him to work his first miracle, which was at a what? A wedding feast. And she was there as the Stabat Mater, the standing mother at the foot of the cross. And she was also there at Pentecost. First and greatest. So now we ask for her maternal intercession. As we ask the God-bearer, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. 
All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. San Alphonsus Liguori. So again, that was night one of our four-part series. If you'd like to listen to the next three nights, hop over to the Etc. podcast feed available in our episode description. Thanks for joining, and God bless.